Take a network break. Lick the frosting melting from your virtual donuts off your fingers and join us for our weekly analysis of tech news. We've got stories from Arista, Juniper, and some financial results. And hey, stick around. After the news, we have a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Fortinet about its Secure Access Service Edge, or SASE, offering and how Fortinet differentiates itself in that market. Uh, and just to let you know, we're running our annual audience survey. We'd love to get your feedback. It helps us plan for next year, helps us develop new content ideas, and it gives us aggregate audience information that helps us land sponsors who make all of this possible. You can find a link to the survey at packetpushers.net slash survey. It'd be really good if you could help us out. That would be fantastic. Yeah, yeah we'd appreciate it. And we're not sharing individual details. It's all aggregate, so uh, and nobody else gets to see this information but us. So yeah, if you have a chance, mm -hmm. packetpushers.net slash survey. We'd appreciate it. All right, let's do some news. Arista, they have announced Cloud EOS Edge. This is the newest offering in their multi-cloud networking portfolio. Cloud EOS Edge enables dynamic path selection over multiple links and integrates with AWS Transit Gateway. Yeah, this is evolutionary here. I don't see this as a, as a massive revolution or an innovation. You were on the briefing there as well. Did you see anything? I sort of, sort of felt that uh, taking the EOS software that they use in the switches turning it into an NFV, you know, network functions virtualization, in other words, dropping it into a VM so that you can overcome some of the limitations of AWS VPCs or cloud providers like AWS, for example, quite often limits inbound flows to a gigabit or things like that. And you, one way to get around that is to use the NFV type infrastructure. Uh, and Arista seems to be saying, yeah, we've got a multi-cloud strategy based around the same as everybody else's. Well, the idea is, you know, you, you take Cloud EOS, you run it in your favorite public cloud uh, that gives you a routing infrastructure and you can manage it with Cloud Vision. And it's the same network OS that you may be using uh, with Arista in the data center. So that's the idea of a simpler uh, operational environment for you. Mm -hmm. um, what I noticed this time is they're now talking about dynamic path selection, meaning if you want to set up multiple links between, say, a branch or your data center premises and your favorite cloud mm. and then decide which traffic goes over which link, that's getting a little bit more SD-WAN-y. Now, it's not a full-featured SD-WAN solution because they can't do application ID and policy-based um, link dynamics based on the application yet, mm. um, but it, it seems like they're moving that way. They did say in the briefing that they are able to do some capability around that because they recognize sources and destinations. So they know that this VPC or that VPC is associated with this application and that this part right. of the data center and this subnet range is associated. So you can do some traffic steering, I guess, would be one way to talk about it, or some traffic engineering sort of conceptually. That's overdriving the term engine. I think traffic engineering is usually a comedy act performed by two people <laughs> in strange clown suits. But... You know, conceptually, what you're trying to do is some sort of ham-fisted load balancing across the available circuits using right. available data. So they said they were going to do that. I think the other things they talked about was they're now using Terraform to be able to do operations. This is We're seeing the, sort of the steady death of Ansible over time as a cloud orchestration platform as Terraform has won that tooling, and most people are shifting to Terraform to orchestrate the cloud. You might well be using Ansible to automate devices because it's all the fashion amongst network engineers and Terraform apparently doesn't have very good tooling for network devices, whereas Ansible does. But increasingly what we're seeing is the software or the SDN platforms that the vendors deploy, they're coming with Terraform first and Ansible maybe never. Uh, so there's a separation here. And Terraform, of course, is very well supported for the cloud, so cloud formation, et cetera, et cetera. And I think the other thing that they've added, which they say, 
uh, is new is consistent network segmentation with open standards. So moving to an eVPN as the new feature. Uh, so new-ish, some new features here, the dynamic path selection integration with the transit gateway so that if something changes in the TGW configuration, it automatically gets sucked up into cloud vision and they can do stuff. But not, you know, this isn't earth shattering. This is progressive step-by-step -step sort of work from Arista. Yes, and we should also note this is something that came up in the briefing. This is separate. It's not based on Big Cloud Fabric, uh, which does do sort of uh, imitates Amazon's uh, VPCs, both on premises and the cloud. This is cloudy OS. It's separate from the Big Cloud, the Big Switch acquisition. Yeah, they're still. Uh, I think they're still working on the Big Switch. Is the sort of subtext there and deciding because Big Switch brings public cloud on premise, and that is a very different sort of an idea to what. Cloud Vision is doing, which is saying, I can connect your on-premise data center to what's in the cloud. And this is this tension that we've talked about before when we did the show with Alkira and Aviatrix and the other multi-cloud providers is there's really two different approaches. There's a cloud native approach where you put an NFE in the cloud and you could connect Azure and AWS and Google together. And there's lots of different approaches to that. And then there's another set of multi-cloud which sort of says, got your existing stuff and you just want to extend it into the public cloud and this is where things like Cloud Vision and Cisco's multi-cloud and Juniper's Contrail multi-cloud solutions, that's what they tend to do. And more, it, yep. It's two different directions coming at the same solution. Right, and last week we talked about Fortinet doing essentially SD-WAN for multi-cloud where you just use the, the Fortinet mm. SD-WAN mm. virtual appliance to connect up your public clouds. As opposed to so other multi-cloud solutions, which, you know, stitch up IPSEC connections from each, you know. So right. There is really a different, what you know, there's there's very different approaches to multi-cloud. And as I said, I still remain unconvinced that multi-cloud is a massive market. I think it's still very early. Um, I don't believe that most customers are at the point where they've got mega pain around this yet. Certainly it's an emerging market and you want to be involved in it, but I would be holding off multi-cloud networking for as long as possible until it converges on you know, can be two different solutions. It can be multiple solutions if, it, if that's what the market needs. But I'm not sure that the market does. Yeah, I, I agree. I feel like multi-cloud isn't... Lots of people are talking about it. I don't know how many enterprises are actually doing it to any significant extent, especially mm. I'm thinking about hooking up different public clouds together as opposed to, you know, hybrid cloud, which is on-premises into your favorite public cloud. Yeah. Uh, I think... Obviously, there's a lot of hybrid happening. I think the multi-cloud connections are still um, a very niche use case. Mm, it's very confusing. And also, the people who are doing it are so busy doing it, they're not really, you know, um, I, I don't, you know, we just don't see a whole lot of stuff around it. But that's that's my sense of it at this point in time, is the market yeah. still the emerging. Are a little bit out ahead of their customers, yeah. Yeah, and the, and the vendors, of course, want to have products there because they want to be able to put a tick on the tender. You know, Absolutely. supports multi-cloud. Check. <laughs> Check. <Yeah. laughs> Let's move on. All right. Uh, Juniper, they have announced a new WAN assurance offering. It leverages the AI and ML capabilities of MIST. That is the uh, AI-driven wireless company that Juniper acquired last year. Uh, WAN assurance sends streaming telemetry from Juniper SRX gateways at your edge locations into the MIST cloud. And then MIST can develop performance-based lines, alert on anomalies, and suggest remediations if problems occur. If this uh, WAN assurance is a complement to Juniper's wired and wireless assurance offerings, which essentially do the same thing for the campus wired and wireless networking products. Yeah, so this, one of the things that immediately strikes me about this is you, when you have these SDN platforms and solutions like Mist, you know, where the SDN controller is in play, and then they add something to it, 
It's very difficult to get excited about it. Like you've got to look carefully and understand whether this is a new feature or it's a new product. And this is actually a new product. What they're offering here is network analytics and assurance. So beyond analytics, they're taking the visibility tooling that Juniper has inside of the Contrail family suite and then adding the Mist AI bot engines to it so that it can start to detect faults in the WAN and alert you to them. So the same sort of logic behind Mist when they were doing the Wi-Fi, then they moved into the campus, they're now bringing to the WAN, which is yes. not a surprise. Um, and we'll talk more about the AI stuff that they talked about. They've also got new announcements around um, their AI platform and so forth. But this is a fairly natural evolution of, you know, I've got Mist AI, I bought them for their wireless. First thing we did was apply it to the campus because the directly adjacent market to wireless is the campus-wired. And, of course, the directly adjacent market to that is SD-WAN, and I imagine that uh, pretty soon we'll have a competitor to Meraki from Juniper type thing where they'll have a Marvis AI that's actually doing the software-defined branch type idea. Does that make sense to you? It does, uh, and it's really quite amazing how quickly Juniper has brought Mist into its product portfolio doing these integrations. Uh, not amazing. We'll talk about it in the financial results. I think there's a sense of urgency would be the way. Yes, that, well, very much, in yes. The, in the financial results, I think we can uh, talk more about what might be motivating Cisco, uh, Juniper to uh, get as uh, active as possible behind this. And certainly I watched some presentations from the MIST team this week, and they are really passionate. They can sense that they've got something that none of the other companies have got, and that is true, right? Uh, I do believe that the MIST AI is actually differentiated from most of the – most of the other vendors who are just putting SDN controllers in place and saying, oh, look, we pull a lever and the, and the thing pops out. You know, it's like that uh, uh, box that does nothing. You flip the switch and a hand pops out and unflips a switch. You seen that? A lot of SDN solutions today are like, oh, look, we wrote software that flips a switch and then unflips it for us. It's kind of like, yeah, that was great five years ago, but really not where we're at in 2020. The Mist has actually gotten on top of the idea. Uh, I think the challenge that they've got, though, is they protest too much that Mist has an AI thing. Um, and the problem, of course, is that many companies have been using AI washing uh, to explain that their SDN has got auto magic in it and it's got nothing mm -hmm. of the sort. You know, it's just some simple automation or maybe it's based on some linear regressions. I think a mist is probably AI as far as I can tell. Like it's actually genuinely using artificial ideas. It might be more machine learning. We could probably argue that. But their message is pretty much like we are... This idea of running around going, no, 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 we're genuinely AI. We're beyond the hype. We're genuinely doesn't resonate with me. I think they should just shut up and get on with it and just focus on the features and stop saying that AI matters. I don't know. Yeah, it's tough because I, I think they do have something. I'm always suspicious of claims around AI and ML and how great it actually is. And, of course, the proof is in the pudding. But uh, they are, I think, being affected by other folks glomming onto the AI and ML marketing, yeah. which is just marketing. Uh, and so that sort of makes people more suspicious of them. I, I mean, frankly, though, any customer should be approach all of this with a, their hackles up. Um, cool. Anyway, let's move on to the other part of the announcement. Uh, Mist and Juniper have the Marvis Digital Assistant. Uh, Juniper now says that Marvis can accept natural language queries, uh, meaning you can just type in questions like, what happened with Alice's Zoom call at 10 a.m.? And presumably, Juniper says, Marvis will understand the intent of that question and surface up the relevant data to the appropriate APs and switches instead of, you know, you, the engineer, having to hunt through dashboards and logs to figure out what went wrong. 
Yeah, and that's interesting. When I first saw conversational interface, I started thinking, like, I can imagine a team of network operators yelling at their computers, which was a very amusing image in my head. Um, but the idea of a chatbot is... Now, that's also going to be a tough sell because there was a big thing around chatbots a couple of years back. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Every website had a chatbot, and they were universally awful, bad, and useless and pointless, and, uh, <laughs> and so on. <laughs> so I think that got to be fairly careful here sort of saying that you've got a chatbot or you're going to attach your marketing message to something that failed miserably. But on the other hand, a conversational interface you know, there's a, there's a piece of me inside saying this could be very good. I could give it to the help desk and they could solve a lot of problems on their own. And there's another side of me saying if somebody asks the wrong question and gets a dumb answer, bad things can happen. So I'm really kind of like, okay, great, I guess. Let's see. <laughs> yeah, let's see. Again, let's see. Uh, I, I love the idea, you know, if it simplifies troubleshooting for you to just say what happened X, Y, Z without having to, you know, put in the actual IPs or MAC addresses of the devices you're trying to go after could be very useful, help speed things up. Um, the other part of this that I really like is that this uh, Marvis Digital Assistant has a feedback loop. If it surfaces up bad information, you can tell it hmm. and presumably it will improve after that. So that's, I think, the feedback loop feature is good. Um, but yeah, again, I, this, this whole thing with AI is like, okay, but how good actually is it? And so I guess now you can start typing in questions and asking and seeing how good it is. Yeah, so, uh, I, I agree. If anybody's had any experience with this, we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, for sure. It'd be interesting to see. I, I mean, I looked at the demos and always, I'm always a little dubious on demos, <laughs> but <laughs> sure. uh, you know, it looks interesting. Um, but the, just, the, the cynic in me just wants to go like, yeah. There's so much potential for bad here, um, yes. And for and not even from the vendor side, which is kind of a given, but from the user side, ask a dumb question, get a dumb answer is sort of the logic I'm following. So maybe garbage in, garbage out. Yes. Yeah. But maybe it works. All right. Here's hoping. I mean, they seem very confident on it. So. Exactly. Yeah, they seem very confident. Uh, we've been burned before, but maybe this time is different. Who knows? Yeah. All right, moving on. Uh, the chipmaker Marvell has announced a new portfolio of Ethernet ASICs and FIs that run the gamut from 1 to 400 gigabits per second. The company also announced capabilities to enable streaming telemetry, secure boot, and an encryption engine to enable MacSec to encrypt Ethernet traffic using these ASICs. Uh, this Ethernet portfolio is under the Prestera brand. And that's been around for a very long time. The Marvell Prestera ASICs have been around for decades, I want to say. And we've never heard anything from Marvell. So this is actually a relaunch of an existing product. I don't actually, this isn't new as such. They've always had it. And, um, but mostly they'd been targeting the mid to low end campus. They seem to have been more focused on industrial ethernet networks. And this has a sort of a stink of um, Inovium's come along and taken some of their thunder or uh, the other way that you could look at this is that uh, we indicated a couple of years ago that the brand vendors in networking seem to be moving to avoid a dependency on Broadcom as a single source supply. So they don't want to be beholden to the chip manufacturer in the same way that everybody in the computer space is to Intel's x86. And you can see this with Apple turning to ARM, and there's a lot of interest in ARM on the server platform and the ability to sort of jump away from Intel and their control of the market and to charge basically whatever price they like. There's definitely a movement that just says, we're going to get into ARM just so we can get a, a, a diversity of supply, get some control uh-huh. over pricing and sourcing. So it's got a couple of different things in there. I think that 
um, we are actually seeing the switching ASIC market move to a diversity of supply. The network operating systems have now built themselves into an abstraction so that any network operating system just has a, a layer between it and the ASIC underneath, and you could pretty much run the same NOS on any um, silicon. Now, that's not to say that a NOS written for Broadcom and a NOS written for Anovium or Malinox, you know, or Barefoot Tofino is immediately portable. But conceptually, that's where we're headed. We're seeing the open source network operating systems move in that direction where they can just have a shimmy layer, shim layer, which runs on any one of those. And I think Marvel has really missed the boat here, not promoting its brand. And I haven't heard anybody in the open source community mention Marvel as a comp compatible product for their, their operating systems. Have you? Uh, I have not, and I was digging around, but they in the press release, Marvell does say they support the Sonic Network OS, which we've talked a lot about, um, and Dent, which is a, an emerging network OS from the Linux Foundation, as well as its own networking software stack. So I think they're saying, hey, in this disaggregation space, if you're looking to diversify your supply, uh, and you've got a disaggregated network OS, we can work together. So, mm. yeah, I think they're a little late, but maybe trying to catch up. Yeah, well, Dent is the AWS version of a NOS that they're yes. trying to get off the ground out of the Linux Foundation, I want to say. Yes, uh, that's right. But the Marvel Prestera Silicon does have a fully full-featured family. It goes right the way from your um, home routers all the way up to a 12.8 terabit per second, 256 uh PAM4 Surdes is 56 gig. So that's sort of like 32 by 400 gig interfaces. So that's a perfectly competent. There was one little piece of the thing that I, uh, that uh, two, two points I took away from having a look at the latest product notes. One was it's uh -huh. the ninth generation Ethernet switch pipeline. So this is the ninth generation of the ASIC. So when I say it's been around for a long time, just because you haven't heard of it, it has. Um, and I used to make a point every year or so of going back to see if they'd done anything. And the web pages all of a sudden seem to have a lot of stuff on them, Drew. Just, it's a mystery, isn't it? <laughs> they, never, they never published the PDFs. They never had any information about the products. And all of a sudden, uh -huh. so this looks like a, it's got the stink of we need to be marketing this or we're going to get, nobody knows who we are. So that's got that part that there. And the last one was leveraging 16 nanometer stable high volume process node. Um because that enables quick time to market for customers. And I, I actually laughed out loud when I read that. Uh, most of the other vendors are moving rapidly to 10 nanometer and even down to 7 nanometer or 12 to right. 10 or something like that to, you know, but certainly well past the 16 nanometer process. Um, so that's really trying to make the best out of your, uh, because the capacity on the modern fabs is actually all fully booked up now that Apple, Intel is now, Realizing that its own fabs can't handle the production, it's actually placing its orders on TSMC because their fabs aren't able to produce it very at the new sizes. And so there's plenty of capacity in 16 nanometer, and so that enables quick time to market for customers. Basically, it's an admission that their fab, their architecture is a little bit behind the times in terms of shrinking the die. But that's probably not a bad thing, you know, not a not a big it, thing. Sure, I, I mean, if you've got. <laughs> <laughs> if you're a few generations behind, then you're stable, mature, and heritage. <laughs> you know, that's yes. Putting a little, making that lemonade out of the lemon. That's exactly right. Get a, and bully for them. Why not? Uh, but sure. <laughs> right. <laughs> Just like, <it> was like, <laughs> leveraging stable 16 nanometer high volume for time to market. Yeah, because nobody manufactures that small, you know. <laughs> yeah, not exactly high capacity in that fab size, yeah. Yeah, so th this may be a rebranding or at least a, a marketing push for Marvel. But frankly, you know, I I'm happy to see Marvel 
amping up uh, some competition mm. in the Silicon ASIC space. Why not? Let, let's have it. I think so. Uh, we've, you know, with this whole disaggregation happening at the software layer, yeah, this is a good time for it. So I certainly don't. I'll start pushing. I think customers win if we get away from being dependent on Broadcom for every switch. Right. Uh, right. And also not dependent on networking vendors to build ASICs. So mm-hmm. that's also important. I think having Intel Barefoot, Malinox NVIDIA, you know, Marvel Prestera, the Anovium, uh, Terralinks, and Terralinks, Cisco's yeah. got its own chipset, the Cloud Scale, which is probably the most niche of all of those because it's basically designed for ACI. Um, it's good for the whole market. I, I can't see anything wrong with that. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, links in the show notes if you want to read up yourself. Uh, we'll move on. Google has announced plans to lay a new undersea fiber optic cable. It will stretch from the east coast of the United States to landing sites in the UK and Spain. This is Google's fourth private undersea cable, and it's expected to be done by 2022. So a couple of things I noted about this. First, on the technology side, uh, this is equipped with 16 pairs or 32 cores. That's a lot. Most transatlantic cables are sort of 4 or 8 or maybe 12 and this is 32 mm. fibers, which is bonkers. Uh, the next thing I noticed, because keep in mind that at every 70 kilometers or 200 kilometers or whatever it is, they have to drop in amplifiers to reamplify the signal. And so 32 cores also means 32 um, amplifiers all the way along it. So it actually is quite complex to do that, as well as the weight and all the other stuff that goes on. So it's really impressive. Um, it's also going to be completed by 2022. That's really fast. So from the time that they announce it to it being in the ground, now assuming the weather holds up, of course, sometimes that can hold it back. That's a really, really fast time to completion. And uh, that just uh, the the fact that Google is big enough to be a customer of itself, like to actually make its own. <laughs> you know, in the old days, right. we used to have telcos to do this, and they would take yes. years of planning and decades and you know, try and get government subsidies and, you know, run around trying to get other people to share it so they could split the cost and minimise the risk. And Google's gone, no, no, 32 fibres, let's go, 2022. Because uh, Google is a big enough customer to be its own telco. Um, so I, I just thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I agree. Uh, th- it is striking that Google is big enough to have its own private undersea cable because these are complex, expensive, massive operations. Uh, so it is impressive. Yeah, and it's just interesting that the you know the telcos get less and less relevant because keep in mind that there are SD WAN companies out there um, who let you chunk data over Google's backbone. Not the cheapest bandwidth in the world; it's pretty premium priced. But there are they sell it as an optimization because. The Google backbone or the AWS backbone or the Azure backbone is bigger, better, and faster than most modern telcos. And if you're mm. willing to pay a premium for your backbone bandwidth, you can actually trunk it over the over these networks that they're building out. So they are telcos in a way. It's not quite in the way that you think it is. These companies put NFE instances in the public cloud and then send your traffic to it and then calculate the best route. And most often that is over a public cloud backbone, which is weird. Right. So it's the old business model, you know, ownership is for Google is about spending capital to avoid OPEX. Google's perfectly willing to spend billions if it means they don't have to spend millions on rental going forward. Nice to have mm-hmm. loads of money, mm-hmm. isn't it? <laughs> it must be good. <laughs> must be good. Ad business is so good, I can just basically blow up money for pointless activities. 
All right, coming back in. Uh, we don't have a sponsor for the show other than the uh, Tech Bytes, but I just want to let folks know, particularly sponsors, if you're interested, you can actually get your ads here on the Network Break podcast. Uh, sponsorship is a great way to reach our listeners. Also helps keep Packet Pushers up and running. So hmm. if you're interested, reach out. If you want to get a hold of Radio Greg and tell your tell the audience about your <laughs> amazing company and how multi-cloud SD-WAN Sassy is going to change the world, this is your opportunity to get your ad in here. There is a premium if you want Radio Greg. Though. It's not cheap. <laughs> probably you want Radio Drew. I think that's probably much more practical. You know, frankly, I'll be honest. I think Ethan has the best uh, podcasting voice of the three of us, and I hope you're not insulted, but he's, I don't know what it is. He's got it. Of course I'm insulted, but I'm going to go with it because you're right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. The rest of the show is going to be very awkward. <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, there are just if you're a vendor and you're in the business of getting your products in front of customers, maybe you're a reseller and you want to get your name out there, the network break runs uh, from sponsorship. So maybe you want to do an ad spot exactly which would go into this situation, or maybe you want to record a tech bite such as what's on the end of the show today. Yep, so you can reach out. How do they find us? Uh, email to sponsors at packetpushers.net. All right, very good. All right, we got some financial news, uh, starting with Juniper Networks. They reported their Q2 2020 financial results. They had a net revenue of just over $1 billion for the quarter, which is down 1% year over year. And net income was $61.2 million, up 32% year over year, which makes me think last year this time was very bad. Yeah, it was. The service provider sales were shrinking. Uh, but in this uh, quarter, they basically business is steady. So shares went up 3.1%, indicating that the people who pay for shares believe that they're much more or less on track to what they're going. So they mm -hmm. met expectations, but they also said things aren't bad. Uh, so revenue fell 1% from the prior year, but we're up 9% sequentially. So that's from last quarter. Uh, operating margin is slightly slower. So the, some things that I sort of took away from this, enterprise declined 2.2% year over year. So that's a concern because we've been talking about Juniper um, trying to make a push into enterprise to reduce reduce right. its dependency on uh, the service provider service market. Provider. Uh, presumably, the service provider market is firing quite well for them this quarter, at least. But the the supply out of the service provider market and the cloud providers is unpredictable, and that's not good right. for investors. And so, I think that's why you're seeing so much effort on Mist um, as a product and attaching to the enterprise, because the enterprise is a, can be a much better source of stable stable revenue. Um, and so if Juniper can get traction with the Mist AI portfolio, as we talked about up the top of the show, then that's going to be good for them. And it should also be remembered that this is actually quite a good result because Cisco shrank. Cisco's total revenue shrank by 5%. But they are telling investors that they are transitioning to subscription subscriptions, so that's licenses, mm. and their build-up of deferred revenue as the license revenue will be booked in the years to come is what's sustaining Cisco's share price. So there's a big difference in business models here. Juniper isn't losing revenue to licensing, to subscription licensing like Cisco is, um, and but they are deploying SDN. I think that's a there's a real diversity here. Cisco's forcing customers into that subscription licensing because it believes that that's good for its business. Customers don't like it. Some customers don't like it. Some do, but most don't. So you should be thinking about that difference in business model as it impacts your um, decisions for yourself. Right. 
Uh, and you've got some notes here that missed orders rose 107% for this quarter. Yeah, well, that's good news, isn't it? <laughs> Given that, that they're throwing <laughs> the reason that their costs are so Given high, because they, they threw a lot of. Appear to be staking their enterprise business around mist. That's a good sign. Yeah, I, I think it's perfectly viable. There's nothing wrong with that strategy, provided the execution follows through. Um, they've right. got it's differentiated. It's very different. They required the product, you know, with the right intentions, and they seem to be throwing plenty of money into the marketing of it because the that's why their costs are increasing. On the flip side, uh, you know. Salespeople cost a lot of money, and customers need a lot of selling to. Enterprise customers don't just buy stuff and, you know, make it easy. They actually need a lot of hand-holding. They want salespeople to come and spend time with them. They need sales engineers to help them set it up, and all that's got to be paid for, and it comes in the sale price. That's right. All right, links in the show notes if you want to see the Juniper results for yourself. We'll move on. A10 Networks reported their Q2 earnings. They had revenues of $52.5 million, up 7% over last year, and a net income of $3.8 million. We don't normally talk about A10 Networks. Uh, they're a load balancer company of old, a bit like F5, but not quite as successful. F5's done a really good job of hardware defining its uh, load balancers, then turning them into application, and then turning them into application security, and then using that... Um, feature to sell a lot of hardware. A10 was much more of a software company back in the day, and they also mm -hmm. pivoted their load balancer into application security and availability, and now have added that whole uh, TLS inspection and web security, DDoS protection, application steering, or you know, or application balancing, whatever you want to call it, it's just load balancing, whatever. And earnings are good. And I think the difference here is that where F5, we'll talk about F5 in the next section, where F5 is struggling, a10 is going up. Now, it has to be said that A10 is a fairly small business at $50 million in revenue. But right. uh, one thing that I noted was um, earnings are good for them because of increased demand because there's software. There's no hardware. You could shift software really easily. Yeah, and we've seen uh, the market sort of develop a bigger appetite for software because all of these hardware, ADCs, load balancers, web security gateways start to get really expensive. And commodity chips have gotten better over time and so a software solution makes a lot of sense it it's does easier to buy yeah if you've got a server you need a load balancer in a hurry you can go and just buy any x86 server and drop an a10 onto it or you can put it in a vm or a container yep. and you've got something going that is um they, they always used to lean into their software architecture they used a specific type of operating system programming trick to get much faster throughput than their competitors and that was their key advantage and now that's really important. So they can get a lot more performance um, than other comp other companies can. Right. And if your investors are not accustomed to those juicy numbers from hardware sales, then you have an easier time in market shifts uh, you can, right. because you're not losing that hardware sale. Yeah, F5's last uh, share price run-up was largely due to its ability to say, oh, all of your hardware is obsolete. You'll have to buy it all again. And customers duly lined up and purchased it all again, whether they wanted it or not. And um, that's a pretty good trick, and it's one that Cisco does a lot, um, increasingly, especially in the campus, because they've now declared all of their campus switches progressively obsolete on much shorter life cycles, and using that as a way of driving customers into the next cycle. So, you know, it's interesting. One more thing that came out of the A10, which really made me perk up, is it said that uh, gross margins are up eight, up to 78% now, and costs are down substantially due to the freeze on travel for sales and marketing and marketing events. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, they're selling more and with less selling, so profits are up. I wonder if there's a lesson to be learned in there. A Zoom call is a lot cheaper than an airline. Ticket. It is, it is. 
All right, sticking with load balancing and ADCs, et cetera, we're moving to F5. It's their third fiscal quarter. The company had revenues of $583 million, up 4% year over year, and a net income of $70 million, which is down compared to this time last year. Yeah, a bit of a mixed thing for F5. Initially, shares popped up, and then they fell away pretty badly. Uh, today, they were actually down over 10% on the back of these results. Uh, because they're really struggling to show that they've got a path to revenue. Now, that is not due because they've got no growth or the product's bad. It's because the share price has actually had a massive run-up over the last uh, year or so. So the share price has run up 71.5% since March 18. Can you believe that? That is bonkers. Wow. They had a massive drop uh, at the beginning of March around the COVID time. They went down to $90, and it's now back up to $150. Now, even then, at that $150, that's not much different from its price going, say, all the way back to 2017. So basically what the market is saying is given that F5 is doing okay, but they've got no particular growth strategy going forward, um, they're going to shrink overall. You know, so people are basically selling out to take profits and get the hell out of the stock and go and find companies that are making money out of the current marketplace. So like, you know, bio... Bio, biology tech, you know, getting into vaccinations and stuff. Sell your F5 and get into biotech. You know. Oh, boy. Yeah. I don't know if I'd recommend that, but what, I'm not an investor. so I, Yeah, that's right. Um, I noted that um, in their press release with the announce, uh, with announcing the results, they are essentially banking on the fact that customers, they are anticipating more customer investment in digital engagement, enlarging their capacity and employee collaboration you know, which means Zoom and so on. I think Juniper made similar statements to the effect that in this pandemic environment, the global network is becoming strategic customers. Yeah. So mm. in other words, the pandemic at present is kind of good for business. Yeah, well, I mean, the, there was there's two things I drew away from this. First of all was no companies mentioned supply chain problems. So nobody was mm-hmm. saying that we're having problems getting kit manufactured and our volume is down because we were unable to get supply. That was kind of unusual because most stuff comes out of China um, and you might have thought that COVID would have an impact to this, but apparently not. Well, I mean, it did. Last quarter, we talked about this. There mm. were worries about the supply chain, but then China got its act together and locked down pretty hard mm. and has emerged in generally good shape, which I think is rebounding in the manufacturing sector, which then again is good for supply chain here in the US. Yeah. So where companies were saying we expect supply chain problems, but didn't have any, now, we haven't got any mention of supply chain problems this time around uh, right. across all of the results that we sort of track. I only pick a few to put into the show. We don't pick every single financial result. We try and pick something that's interesting. And I think the second takeaway is that COVID-19 hasn't had any impact on sales overall. The, it, it's a story of innings, though. Um, I think companies fit into three separate categories. There's those companies for whom the world is ending, you know, if you're in travel or hotels, right. you know, right. <laughs> retail, <Yes. laughs> you're probably turning every, you know, you're probably winding back, you're not spending money, you're not mm-hmm. rolling out new stuff. Um, and there's a whole bunch of companies on the on the other side of that equation who are racing to do more spending on IT. A lot of people are spending on VDI, remote access, how do we switch to stuff, and how do we grow the business while this pandemic will continue to go you know, we're facing years of this at the end of the day. This whole process of working remotely um, is going to be years away. You're not going to be having sales pre- salespeople come to your premises. You don't want to play it. You don't want a zombie coming in that might be infected with the plague, right? <laughs> right. 
salespeople are zombies before, but now they might be zombies with infectious plague on them. That's the joke. Not a very wow. good joke. Not a good joke? Anyway. So you, harsh, harsh. Harsh, yeah. So a lot of companies are <laughs> but actually potentially in, true. I mean, yeah. if a person's job is to go to a bunch of different places and talk to a bunch of different people, that's exactly what you shouldn't do in a pandemic. That's right. You should not be wanting salespeople in your organization. You should not be sitting in eight-hour presentation meetings with a bunch of potential plague carriers outside of your social distance circle. And that's going to be like that for another year or more. Like yeah. it or lump it, right? You should not be bringing in engineers from third parties because that's exactly the same problem. You should be doing this remotely, collaboratively in some way. And uh, ultimately, because everybody's in the same situation, this hasn't had an impact on sales. But the companies themselves, weirdly, still believe that they're going to have to send salespeople out to get purchase orders because they don't, they can't imagine that customers are going to initiate new business without handshakes and hugs, which is weird. Uh -huh. So uh -huh. anyway, that's a different story altogether. But as you say, um, I, I think those are, the, those are the messages that we're getting from the financial results so far. Yeah, and I have to – my impression is that it's not going to last. Uh, we've had a lot of government intervention here in the U.S. in the economy, uh, both from the Fed and from you know payouts to individual consumers directly, which is keeping things afloat. If and when that changes, that's going to affect how consumers yeah. act, and that's in turn going to affect how retailers and others spend their money, which is then going to come back to the technology company. So I feel like we're in this yeah. weird polyamory. You've got to be careful, got to be uh, careful with statements like that because the position in the U.S. is very different from Europe as it is from Asia. Yeah. So there are – so the U.S. has supporting funding programs and so does Europe – but other parts of the world don't, so they won't. Their bounce back will look different. Got to be, mm -hmm. and for all of these companies that we're talking about, they're all global, and typically fifty percent of the revenue comes from the US, and the other fifty percent comes from outside, and less and less of it comes from Asia as the global politics, the geopolitics plays out, and shrinks right. the global revenue. So, for example, um, the A10, sorry, F5 network showed that their uh, sales to Asia went from 20% for service providers shrank from 20% to 15% and their sales to enterprise went from 60 to 67 and a lot of that is because the Asian service providers aren't buying F5 products anymore because they're switching away from US supplies right so you know there's a lot of that going on um so you've got to be very careful about how you do that um Make sure that you don't talk about parochial things like what happens in the US as though it affects the whole world because it actually doesn't <laughs> But, Sometimes it does. Well, <laughs> but I take your point. Yeah, you've got to uh, be, yes, I, yeah. I I do have a very parochial outlook in this regard. Yeah, and definitely the U.S. is a major market. But you know, in the middle of what I said before about the two companies at either side, there's a middle ground here. And some companies yeah. are actually. I was talking to somebody from a university, and he said they're doubling down on getting their campus network upgrade finished while nobody's at at the uni. <laughs> Right? <laughs> and I'm sitting there thinking to myself, is anybody ever going to come back on campus? And apparently they believe so. So, okay. So there's, there's this, this year, but... Yeah, there's companies in the middle that are, aren't spending on some things but are on others. So it's very, you know, unusual. I guess my broader point is, particularly here in the U.S., there is a whack of economic pain that we haven't felt yet that is coming down the pike and uh, in, in next quarter or the quarter after we may be talking about it. I don't know. I think there's going to be a few. I think we're seeing the second wave of COVID. There's definitely going to be a situation where COVID comes and goes, ebbs and wanes um, yep. for the foreseeable future, probably for a year or two. I think we're also going to see a financial cost that has to be paid. So we're going to see higher taxes across the board to pay for the debts that these countries have incurred, like the trillions of dollars uh -huh. 
of financial support that governments have given to their citizens to get them through this has to be paid. And right. that's going to have to result in taxes, which will cause a slowdown of some ilk in the future, but nobody's talking about that. So I think it's going to happen at multiple levels. All right, before we wrap up, we have one more story, and it's space networking. Yes, as always, we've got to catch up with space networking. I can't go, can't miss an opportunity to talk about it, can we? Not, never miss a chance. Uh, so the FCC has approved a plan from Amazon to put thousands of satellites into orbit for space-based broadband services. Amazon calls this Project Kuiper, and the question now is whether Blue Origin will get all of this satellite launching biz. So this is exciting in the sense that we've talked about SpaceX and their potential Starlink project, which is their space broadband project, which seems to be iterating forward. And there's been various bits of scuttlebutt, seen some photographs of the base stations leak online and how the antennas might look. They're basically power over Ethernet powered. And the suggestion is that they'll just be dropped on the roof with a cable coming down, which is interesting because the satellite dish has to actually track the satellites to be able to work. Now that Project Kuiper, which is Amazon, has lodged a permission with the FCC to place its satellites in orbit, the general assumption is that Blue Origin, which is, of course, a rocket project owned by Jeff Bezos, yes. and this isn't new. So the Blue Origin from and Jeff Bezos was actually started back in, say, 2012. It's been um, around a while, yeah. It's been a long time. I think we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. So they are well progressed, not as far along as SpaceX, of course, but they are, have recently been selected by NASA to take part in the Sending a Human to the Moon project. They won part of the bid for that. But they must be far enough along to convince NASA that they are a serious space company. And so the general assumption would be that Amazon, owned by Jeff Bezos substantially, would use Blue Origin, owned by Jeff Bezos, to launch its satellites into space. <laughs> <laughs> Some vertical integration right there. You would think so. We know, uh, for example, that Amazon has already built a business unit to put satellite base stations down on the ground. So it's now offering satellite base station services as a pay-as-you-go type thing. So, as a service. <laughs> as a service. The general assumption, I think, would be is that Amazon wants to build a satellite constellation. It will do broadband, but presumably it will also be used for more traditional satellite activities as well. So Amazon will have both a technology component, AWS base stations. I can't remember what the exact name of the base station business is. But now they will also have a, a different business which will do the satellite constellation and sell it as a service. So it'll be interesting to see how it goes. And just a few notes from a story we're reading in The Verge. Um, Amazon plans to launch 3,236 satellites according to the FCC's license. They have to get half that number in orbit by 2026 to keep the license, and then the remaining satellites have to be up by 2029, so the clock is ticking. Yes, maybe they do have to send some up on a SpaceX Rocket. That would be <laughs> I cannot, the ego clash of having to put. <laughs> well, you know, the price of a SpaceX launch dropped by five million this week. So, you know, wow. maybe, oh, maybe, you, maybe, why not? You know, so it's exciting times, though. I think the interesting part here is that as a customer, there's potentially competition. You won't just be stuck with Starlink as your only option. There may mm -hmm. be a range of different supplies. There are other companies bidding to put satellites into space, but we're just picking this one this week to talk about because, you know, Space networking is just the coolest thing going on, really. Absolutely. All right, link in the show notes if you want to read more. That wraps up the news. Please stay tuned for our conversation with Fortinet on its sassy offering that's starting right now.
You're listening to the Tech Bytes podcast from the Packet Pushers, where we take about 15 minutes to get you up to speed on new products and ideas. We're talking with sponsor Fortinet about its Secure Access Service Edge, or SASE, offering. And our guest is John Madison. He is Executive VP of Products at Fortinet. John, welcome to the podcast. So SASE is a fairly new market category. So what should listeners know out of the gate about SASE and how it's different from just general cloud-based security services? Yes, thank you for having me. Um, so SASE, uh, two really important concepts. In fact, our company, Fortinet, was founded on them. Uh, one was bringing networking and security together in a single stack and a single policy engine. And uh, we've been doing that over the years uh, using uh, our ASICs and appliances. Uh, SASE kind of broadens that to say you can do it there, but you can also do it in virtual machines. You can also do it in the cloud. And so this coming together, the convergence of network security and uh, the security itself, the networking allows this to happen. And then the second concept is more around uh, the framework or, or a platform of not just one uh, element, but several. So whether it be uh, secure SD-WAN, whether it be WAF, whether it be CASB, whether it be Web Gateway, bringing these together as a platform rather than individual point products. So this is really this idea of once we did the first generation of SD-WAN, we got the path thing going, you know, multiple paths at the same time, automated failover, you know, detection of brownouts as well as blackouts, that type of stuff. What we actually did was that everybody woke up and said, well, why aren't we just doing security as well? So now we're talking about firewalls and threat detection and scanning and things like that all in one product. Is that the idea? Yes, we call it security-driven networking, where, again, we accelerate both the networking stack and the security stack. But what's going to be important going forward is as the edges change, you've got the WAN edge, you've got data center edge, cloud edge, even the home edge these days, uh, you need to be able to apply that security in different ways. So, yes, we can use appliances to do that. We can use virtual machines. And then also we've got a cloud delivery mechanism uh, as well. So it was Gartner who essentially came up with this SASE category, and we're seeing lots of vendors respond by sort of pointing all the products in their portfolio to see if they can fit this definition. How is Fortinet looking at this new SASE category? Yeah, well, this is one of the problems uh, with the when Gartner come out with an acronym. In fact, right now, I don't know if you've heard of Gartner, what they call hype cycles, which are the tracking yeah. of technology through these different times. And right now, they came out with this network security hype cycle and the networking enterprise hype cycle. And SASE is right at the top of both. So it's doubly amplified. <laughs> so Gartner is calling out their own hype around SASE. Exactly. The hype, of the hype of the hypes. But the trouble is, you know, you know, some vendors take this, they, they kind of manipulate it into their own product portfolio. Customers get all confused. And so really, SASE, from a, from a definition perspective, and talked about the core piece, which is the foundation bringing network and security together, then once you expand across that, you need to have quite a, a broad product portfolio, uh, all managed by a single console, all orchestrated. And so I think there's a lot of different definitions. I think there's a core set of functionality you need, which we talked about, which is SD-WAN, uh, Web Gateway, CASB, Zero Trust Access, and then some optional pieces. But uh, I definitely recommend people uh, or customers look at their own networks to see where they're going and trying to align it with that versus the, all mm. the hype that's going on. Well, I think I think the interesting part about the Fortinet approach is you're not bolting it on. You were a security company first. And I think the lesson we learned from SD-WAN was that because it's an overlay, like usually an IPSEC overlay, uh, then really the only thing you had to bring was the software-defined controller, the software controller that went on the top so that you could control the path dynamics, and then you had the whole security portfolio already. It wasn't like, 
oh, I'm a router company and now I've got to go and find a security capability. It was, we're a security company, but we were already doing IPsec overlays as well. Yeah, think about it. If you go back four or five years, you had a lot of SD-WAN networking companies. Then you had security companies, and they were sitting next to each other. I mean, most companies had two deployments. Uh, yeah. And what's happened is to have the SD-WAN vendors got the security on board and have the security vendors built the SD-WAN, you know, mm. we spent a long time, four or five years, building that SD-WAN inside our system rather than just overlaying it uh, because it's much more efficient, cost-effective, and easier to apply policy to. Yeah, and you didn't have so far to travel. It's not like you had to reorganize. I think if you were a, a networking company turning into a security company and welding the two together, you had a much further to travel to do that than a security company coming into networking because remote access was already part of the plan, really, or IPsec tunnels. Well, um, I also remember that a lot, of, a lot of security companies are basically software companies. So we were starting from, you know, we had hardware mm. experience, we built our own chips, we had a great, great networking stack, and even then it took us a while. Imagine just being a software security company. You have no chance, really. Mm, that's true. That's why some people have acquired it recently. Yeah, well, I think the acquisition part is is fairly natural. I think any time we see the market go through a transition, like as SASE talks about, like this sassy idea where the security and the networking merge, it's a bundling of what was previously a separate thing. Is that a reasonably accurate summary of where we're at? It is, but also remember that, as I talked about, these edges appear in different places, and as more traffic maybe comes straight off the, the WAN edge to the cloud, the public cloud, or from home right now to the public cloud directly, you're going to need these different delivery and consumption models. So it may be appliance. It may be virtual machine in the east-west. It may be uh, cloud delivery. We know we made a recent acquisition of opaque networks to yeah. allow our networks to be cloud-delivered as well. So you're going to need a flexible model. It's not just one model going forward. And I think that's an important distinction because the way I understand Gartner defining SASE is it's primarily a cloud-driven service. And you're saying it doesn't just have to be cloud. You can also do it on-premises. Well, here's the reason. The reason for it is uh, that that's the only way a lot of companies can do it. They don't have the capabilities to go and build an ASIC. They don't have the capabilities to optimize virtual machines. And so the, the only way they can do it is to use a lot of compute in the cloud. It's expensive. Um, but you do need all three models, in our opinion, to cover the edges as, as corporations and enterprise networks move forward. So consumption models are important then. You, start to talk, you said there about cloud, but we're also seeing that drive from enterprise customers to say, I don't want to pay for it up front anymore. Um, is Fortinet moving into this, uh, well, you know, flexible consumption model in the marketing words? Yeah, I mean, we've been doing it for a while with our virtual machine technology, with uh, telco networks. Uh, our OPEC, or 40 SASEs we're calling, you know, our very complex naming mm. schema of 40, whatever it does. Uh, <laughs> it keeps me, it keeps consistent. Me, <laughs> keeps me uh, busy, that's for sure, that naming uh, terminology. But um, yeah, we, you know, the, the 40 SASE will be a subscription monthly based. And I think what we're going to see going forward is for us is to spread that across the hardware as well. So the customers have a choice of either, you know, perpetual subscription, pay as you go monthly. Uh, I think absolutely uh, they want the flexibility. Mm. So can you tell us a little bit about those components, the, the cloud aspect of your SASE um, offering, but also how you're doing it on-premises? Yeah, so the, you know, the SD, SD-WAN and the SASE on-premise is basically our appliances where we apply a full uh, SD-WAN solution, but then we can apply all types of security. And I still think that you're going to need, uh, for example, application control. We need that to do some of our application steering. Mm -hmm. You want to leave that land totally exposed, so you probably need some exploit protection there as well. So I don't see the concept of this very simple routing just being on the premise. You're going to need some capability to protect the LAN 
and provide some of that functionality. And then you can put all the security on there, or you can say, hey, well, I'm going to forward that to our 40 SASE cloud and provide maybe the web gateway uh, or some other types of security on there. So I think in the end, it's going to be a hybrid model. All the customers that I speak to are going to be hybrid for a long time. And therefore, you need to be able to apply security where you think makes most sense. I think a key aspect of the Fortinet approach, based on some briefings I've had with you and some tech field day events I've seen and so on, is this notion you have of the Fortinet fabric. So I don't have to be an all Fortinet shop. I can leverage other security tools and products that I may have in my environment, and you guys somehow knit them together. Yeah, the fabric is, is what we call the platform. A lot of people, again, talk about platforms. It could be an endpoint platform, but you know, there's two ways of building a platform. You can go out and buy a lot of stuff and try and bolt it together, uh, which is hard, or you could build it organically, which in some ways is just as hard because you still need to build all the features and, and, and capabilities. We've chosen a bit of the, mostly the organic. Now, we do make some acquisitions, but they're not big ones. They're not installed base of hundreds of thousands of people and systems, but they're smaller acquisitions of people and technology. And, mm. you know, right now, we think we have 20 products, which is part of our fabric. But also what's important, as you mentioned, is that we have a, an API and connectors. Mm -hmm. uh, two issues here. One is that a lot of customers say, I've got so many products. The real issue is they've got so many orchestration systems. Those orchestration systems control the products and the infrastructure. Yeah, the so single pane of glass sure problem. Everybody's got a single pane of glass for every product yeah. and every category. Yeah, but, yeah. but those orchestration systems are usually huge vendors who don't want to talk to each other. Mm. And so what we do is try and talk to the orchestration system. So, you know, Cisco is a competitor of ours, but we talk to their ACI system. We talk to mm. their ICE system, for example, to extract mm. objects and information mm. of the infrastructure. Uh, and then we have other APIs which people build to to be part of the ecosystem. I think the industry as a whole, definitely cybersecurity industry, you know, has a couple of issues. One is that people just don't talk to each other, and we don't share the threat information. That should be basic stuff that we should be doing. And so yeah, that's a, that's a customers. And that's a real challenge because if you um, listen to the business people talking about how do they solve security problems in their infrastructures, they're saying they've got too many security products, and each product doesn't talk to the other. There's no joined up sort of thinking going on in the security. And that is, I think that's another angle on SASE, this idea that SD-WAN and the security products before um, were always like, here's a proxy, here's a firewall, an application firewall, here's a threat scanning engine, here's an antivirus, here's a, you know, they were all separate things. And now they're all coming together into a single product. Yep. There's a convergence or a, a rebundling. And then once you've got them all rebundled, you've still got the same operational problems. How do you update the antivirus signatures? What are you going to do with your malware alerts? How are you going to maintain your firewall rules? That Those problems don't go away unless you can unify all of those tools into a, well, for lack of a better term, a toolkit or a fabric, as you say. Yeah, and a fabric. And so, you know, it t takes a long time to build something like that. We've been building it for 10 years. Every time we do a release of a product, we have to release it against the fabric and the individual products. Hmm. And, you know, for example, we can bring up a topology map instantly of all our firewalls, switches, access points, endpoints, WAP, instantly a topology map because they all talk to each other because we build that ecosystem. Now, I think the industry needs to really be shaken up a bit because that's not going to be a single vendor for everything. So people need to work together. And I think the industry, in our opinion, spends too much money on hype and marketing and versus doing testing and certification and collaboration. Yeah, and that's partly historical and that's partly the way forward. But it's refreshing to hear you say it's much more about the operationalization or the actual usage than um, focusing on the other side of it, of, of getting people to follow my brand and to drink my Coca-Cola sort of thing. 
Yeah, um, and I think if you can get to that point where you can collab, you know, you've got integration between the orchestration systems, our vision is then we can apply some AI ops on top of that. I know that's another burst term, sorry, mm. which allows some automation of both the security, where the security needs to go, given the attack, uh, and then also gives you some prediction of what's happening with your network and can you automatically, before things get out of control, shut things down, switch things over. So I think once you get to that model, you can then start applying AI across that big data. So I think, you know, I see the whole AI ops as I'm using software to do the operations for some level of unattended. That is, if I see a thing, I see a pattern, then I should do this. And at the end of the day, all the customers have the same networks doing the same things with the same problems. They all have threat management. You see a threat, what do you do? Well, you don't want to always just turn to a human and say, you know, you should do this. He'll then click the yes button. There's, there's a certain amount of automation. Now, whether they're using deep learning or machine learning and or actual genuine artificial intelligence doesn't matter as far as we're concerned. I think AI ops is the next sequence to this. It's the sequel, which is where you get to intent-based SD-WAN, where you say, please secure my branch. That's my business intent. Yep. Keep it secure. Keep it sustained. Hopefully, we don't end up with intent-based WANs. There's no successor to that, but we will. But, it, 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 but that's kind of the thinking behind that AI ops model, I think. We speak, a Gardner analyst is busy coming up with... Well, you, you know, intent-based networking is on the hype cycle for Gardner. <laughs> we actually refer to it as intent-based network security, and you're exactly right. What it means is, let me just, you know, think about that topology graph. Let me take one of these users with, with security ratings A, B, or whatever. Let me drag it across to the application, the workload, with whatever it is, and let the system in between work out all the configuration of the routers, switches, firewalls, SD1, and everything else rather than an individual going through bit by bit now that's a vision that's definitely not something we have today if it is i think we'd be twice the size company wise but <laughs> it's a vision that customers like because a lot of them have so many policies they're still in silos they want to bring these things together so before we get too far afield on intent-based and AI ops and stuff, let's let's bring it back to the, this whole notion of SASE, which is where we started. Can we kind of go back over how Fortinet differentiates itself in this emerging SASE category? Well, two things. One is we've been working on SASE, that is bringing together called security-driven networking since the foundation of the company. Uh, and again, we do that through uh, ASICs. We've just delivered, we're delivering some systems now with ASICs that we're running 200 gig firewalls, can run 10x the SD-WAN computations. So we'll do that. Now, what we also do is allow you that with acquisition recently to do that flexibly. So you can do it on an appliance at the SD-WAN or WAN Edge. You can do that in virtual machine. Now you can do it in cloud delivery. And the second piece which differentiates is that the scope of our portfolio uh, is very broad. In fact, it's the broadest um, uh, SASE portfolio out there. We have obviously Zero Trust, we have SD-WAN, uh, we can do the security on the appliance, we can do security in the cloud, we've got the CASB, uh, we've got WAF, we've got browser isolation. Hmm. And when you go through the whole stack, it's all there. Uh, now, I'm not saying that customers come tomorrow and going to sign a PO and say, I need all those things, just check them off and deliver me, and off you go. Um, but it does give us the flexibility to mix and match those components depending on the customer configuration. So our, in, our ability to deliver it via appliance, virtual machine, and cloud, and the, the breadth of our portfolio across SASE is, is very differentiated. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of this Tech Bytes episode. Uh, John, where can folks go to get more information? Uh, they can go to fortinet.com backslash blog backslash SASE. And uh, there's great information there on SASE, its uh, description and where it's going in the future. 
That's great. It's fortinet.com slash blog slash sassy. And we'll have that link in the show notes that accompany this podcast. Thank you, John, for joining us. And thanks to Fortinet for being a sponsor. Sponsors let us produce nerdy technical podcasts. And if you want hours and hours and hours of fine free technical content, head on over to packetpushers.net. You can also follow us on Twitter at packetpushers. Find us on LinkedIn, like us on Facebook, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.